Good morning. Uh, if we have not met before, I'm Pastor Ryan. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here this morning. And uh, as I came up here, you may have noticed that I have um, kind of a limp, a slight limp. And you may have been worried. Oh no, what happened, Ryan? What, what happened to you? Why are you injured? Um, well, let me tell you the main reason. Uh, this year, I'm going to turn 30 years old. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I am turning 30 this year, but this was actually due more to a sledding accident that happened yesterday. So uh, we went up with some friends up to Mount Hood and went sledding, and uh, let, me, let me tell you what happened. I'll, I'll describe it to you. So it was a classic sledding hill, right? So you've got the slope that goes down, and, and, and then there's the flat spot, right? And then on the other side of the flat spot is a ravine that goes down into a creek, right? Uh, your classic sledding hill, okay? Every good sledding hill has a ravine that goes down to a creek at the other end. So now, I will preface this by saying my story does not end in me going down the ravine into the creek. It's not that exciting, okay? So uh, <clears throat> as you're going down the hill then, though, when you get to the flat spot, if you're going fast enough, you need to stop yourself because you don't want to end up in the creek. And so there's a few different ways that you can stop yourself when you're sledding. You can turn the sled, right? You can just jump off of it. You usually end up stopping that way. Or there's a third way. You can put your feet down into the snow to stop yourself, right? So... I was going down, I had a couple kids with me in this sled, and we're going down the slope, and we're going pretty fast, and I know we've got to stop, right, before we get to that ravine. And so I put my feet down, and I had done it before, and it worked great, but this time I put my feet down, and this leg kind of got caught, and kind of turned this way, and kind of just went the way it was not supposed to go. And, and, and it was, I could feel it in that moment, like, oh, I'm going to feel this tomorrow. And luckily, it, it wasn't too bad. But it made me think, 10 years ago, would I have felt this way, <laughs> you know? Because um, you feel like when you're a teenager, when you're, you know, in your young 20s, you just feel like you're unstoppable. You can do anything, and it's not, not, not that big of a deal. And I'm not trying to say that I have felt the aches and pains of life and that kind of thing. Um, but, there, <laughs> but there's a difference. There's a difference in my life. Uh, I think about doing youth ministry 10 years ago. Um, on a pretty regular basis, we would plan these lock-in events, right, where you invite middle schoolers to come to the church and you stay up all night um, playing games with them, eating junk food, that sort of thing. And I can tell you that these days, my motivation to plan those kinds of events is really low. <laughs> Just does not sound as fun to me to do anymore. Um, so there's transformation that takes place in our lives, right? Physically, we can feel a transformation, and it's usually downward. Uh, but, you know, and, and it doesn't matter how, how much you exercise, how well you eat, eventually you will feel the pains of life. You'll feel that physical transformation of your body breaking down, right? This body wasn't meant to live forever. And so we feel that. But there's other types of transformations as well, right? There's a mental transformation. Um, and, and, that actually can get better over time, right? As you, as you get out of your teenage years, out of your 20s, you start to think a little further ahead. You start to think through things a little bit more before you do them. And, and as you gain life experience and you, you get wisdom, right? That gray hair is wisdom, right? I don't have any of that yet. But so there's this mental transformation that happens over our life as well. But today what I really want to talk to you about is a spiritual transformation that happens in, that happens in our life. 
When we come to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit transforms us into new life, transforms us, makes us more like Jesus. And that's where we're going to be today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you want to open up to that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, in the, if you're using one of the church Bibles, I believe it's on page 987. Give you a chance to turn there really quick. Let's read it. Verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So now as we walk through this passage, trying to understand what what is Paul talking about here, he's actually going to really center in on one main thing. Um, And as we get there, what we see is, uh, he starts out, he's telling them to do something. This is action, right? Because of what God has done for you, now this is what we do. And and they've talked about this to them before. So he says, you you've received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So there's this idea of pleasing God. And we can say, okay, that makes sense. So it's a good thing to please God. And, and as he says here, he's saying, we, you, you're already doing this. You know about this. Do so more and more. And that's probably true for a lot of you in here as well, right? You know this. Maybe you're doing it. Do so more and more. Paul as we've gone through the book of 1 Thessalonians, you've heard Pastor Bob talk about this, the context of this church and what was going on. Um, Paul only had a little bit of time with them before he was run out of town. And now he's writing a letter back to kind of fill in some of the gaps and encourage them in some of these things. And so what he's saying to them is, yeah, you guys know this. You're doing it. Good job. But do it even more. So how do we please God? If we're called to please God, how do we do it? Well, verse 3 here says, for this is the will of God. Well, that makes sense, right? Please God by doing his will. Well, what is God's will? We could talk about that all morning here. But it says it right here in verse 3. The will of God, your sanctification. And that's one of those Christianese kinds of words, right? That if you've been around church for maybe a little while, you probably have heard it before. You might know what it means, but sometimes it's difficult, right? Sanctification, it's, it's set apart. It's this whole, becoming holy, I like to think about it in terms of becoming more like Jesus, this transformation to become more like Jesus. After we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit works in us to transform us, to make us more like him. And that's really where we're going to dig in more this morning. And he gives us an example right off the bat. So your sanctification. So what's an example of, of sanctification? That's what Paul's trying to, trying to tell them here. And it's helpful Right? We think about being transformed to become more like Jesus. Well, what does that look like in everyday life? Well, he says right here that you abstain from sexual immorality. That you don't do that thing. That's what it looks like to become like Jesus is to not do that. To abstain from sexual immorality. 
And as we come to this this morning, as we look at the culture around us, as we look at our own lives, this is a relevant thing that he's talking about, right? Well, what do we mean by sexual immorality? Maybe it's best to define it by what it's not. Um, God has given this wonderful gift of sex that's it's to be in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, right? So it's in that context, it's good. Anything outside of that context, then, is sexual immorality. And so that's what it is. And we see the relevance of it today, but what about back then? Was this a big deal back then? Why was he writing this to them? And it, and it was. This was a big issue for them in that day as well. Uh, in fact, we usually think of it as an irreligious thing in today's world. Back then, it was actually a religious thing. That with pagan religion, people who were coming out of pagan religion, that was actually part of their religion was to engage in this outside of marriage. They'd actually go to the temple to do it. They had rooms in their house dedicated to this, right? You had your wife who raised your children, but then you'd also have a mistress. And, and so this was a part of that world that they lived in. But now these people that have come to Jesus, Paul's saying, no, there's a new life. There's a different life in him to walk away from that. And he unpacks it more with this talking about uh, the self-control, right? You know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. Not, not lustfully doing these things. Um, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Don't be stealing your neighbor's wife, right? And so we understand it in their context then it was very relevant, but it's relevant for us here as well in the world that we live in, right? When we look outside at the world, we see this. Uh, just in advertising, this is how we sell things, right? It is by using, using this. And so it's a big issue out there. But it's also an issue in here too, isn't it? It's an issue in our lives. Most, most men struggle with temptation to do this thing. Most men do, and about two-thirds of women do, right? This isn't some minor example that he's just kind of throwing out there, like maybe this is an issue. I mean, this is a big issue in the world that we live in today, even within believers, even within followers of Jesus. This is a huge temptation in our lives. The Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. I probably don't even need to explain the connection, right? That, that even just makes it even a bigger issue, right, with the internet and the accessibility. The opportunity to sin is so great now. It makes it that much harder to resist that temptation, to not give into it. And sometimes we struggle. The world certainly believes this way, and sometimes we kind of think this, this way as well. Like, what's the big deal? Come on, God, it's just sex. Why are you so tied up with this issue? Why is it such a big deal? But it is. And there's some deeper stuff going on there, right? And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But we see that it is a big issue for God. Because he says, the, uh, in, in verse, the end of verse 6, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beho- beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And there's the hope there, because God has given us his Holy Spirit. 
That's the passage. And now I want to dig into this idea of sanctification more. Because I think that will help us understand a little more of, of why and how we step into this new life in Jesus. And so this is the what. We can, you can define sanctification different ways. Like I mentioned before, this, this transformation of becoming more like, more like Jesus. But we also have words like justification. And so we're kind of like, man, what is the relation? How does this work? Because sanctification is good works, right? Doing good works. And, and that makes us a little uncomfortable, right? Because we're like, wait, but it's not by works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. And so it's not about what I do. And so if works are involved, how do they come in? And so in order to help us understand that a little better, I have an illustration for you. Um, but I need a volunteer. Actually, I've already got one. If uh, Jill would come on up here. If you guys have not met, this is my lovely wife, Jill. And uh, so she's going to help me with this this morning. So about eight years ago, we stood right here. Actually, uh, <laughs> we stood right here. And did something very special. It wasn't another sermon illustration. Um, we got married on this very stage right here. The carpet and the wall was a little different. But we stood here and the pastor stood behind us. And he, he said things about us. He said things about marriage and about God. And we, uh, we, we vowed to each other certain things. We exchanged rings. And then there was a very important part of the wedding that took place. He pronounced us man and wife, and then we got to kiss. I won't reenact that part today, okay? But <laughs> there was this definitive point in the wedding, right, that you can look back to. If we, had, if we had videotaped our wedding, we could look back and go, that's it. Right there is when we got married, is when we became husband and wife. You can go sit down. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So there's this definitive moment where our relationship changes, where our, my identity changes, our position to each other changes, and we became husband and wife. Now let me ask you, in that moment, did I receive this supernatural download of information that told me how to be a good husband? What do you think? No, it didn't. Now, don't get me wrong, I had been preparing for it, right? I mean, even just growing up. I had been learning what it meant to be a good husband by watching my dad, by watching other people, seeing what it was to be a husband. We went through premarital counseling, okay? I was working towards that. But as we know, experience is the best teacher. And I can look back at the beginning of the marriage, and I didn't realize it then, but I look back now and I go, oh, man, I was not a very good husband. But also I'm so thankful, looking back eight years and going, I'm not the husband I used to be. And how much has changed in those eight years. And we were just talking uh, in January on our anniversary, reflecting that, man, this last year of marriage has been the best year yet. And that's a great place to be, right? But if when we get to year 10 or year 15 or 25 and we look back and we go, yep, year 7, that was it. It was all downhill from there. <laughs> right? We, that would not be a good thing. But I'm not worried about that because I know what it takes to learn how to be a better husband. I'm going to continue to walk in that. I'm dedicated to continue to walk in that. My identity changed in a moment. I became a husband. And yet I'm still learning how to be a husband, right? And that's where we're at with this. 
We talk about conversion, salvation, a moment where we come to faith in Jesus, where we proclaim it, we confess it, and we say, and, and we become a child of God, right? Where we can say, my identity changed. I'm a child of God now. I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. But we don't just get some supernatural download of information that tells us how to be like Jesus, right? We have to walk in it. We learn it. It's a process. And that process is what we call sanctification or transformation. We believe in the good news of Jesus, the gospel, and then we become more and more like him. The Holy Spirit works in us to become more and more like him. But it does include good works. And I think sometimes that makes us uncomfortable a little bit. We talk about the the why. Why did God rescue us? Because he loved us. John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Uh, how did he save us? Uh, Jesus, he sent his one and only son. But what did he save us to? Well, we often think of eternal life. But then we get this idea of salvation is kind of a death insurance, or a hell insurance, right? That I, I believe in Jesus and I get this insurance policy. Luckily, he paid for it. Um, and that means that when I die, I get to be with, in paradise with him forever. But it's kind of a cheap version of it, right? Because during the rest of my life, I'm like, it doesn't really matter what I do because I was saved by grace. No one can take me out of his hands. The rest of my life doesn't matter. I just can't wait till I die and be with him. And yet, it's a cheap version of the gospel. But how do works play into this? The truth is, we don't work for salvation. We work from salvation. God has saved us, and now he's making us more like him. So that's the order of things. That's what salvation is. Um, But I think sometimes we still struggle, and I know at times in my life I struggled with this idea of why does God care so much if I'm a good person, right? If he saved me, because he already loved me, while I was still still a sinner, he saved me. And then I receive the righteousness of Jesus, meaning that when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. Why do I still have to try to be a good person? What's, what's the big deal? Why do I have to do that? And I even went through that in my own life. Um, coming, having those thoughts, trying to reconcile with that idea. And so let's answer that question now. Why does God save us for this holiness, for good works? Why does God want us to live that way? Well, a lot of it comes down to our view of sin. We have a misunderstanding of what sin is. You see, too often in our lives, we think of sin as this fun nice thing that God just doesn't want us to do, right? Now, I don't want to soften sin at all because I do believe that sin is rebellion against God and that it does deserve eternal punishment and death. But we have this idea in our heads that, you know, God just made these rules and when we break the rules, that's sin and and he made these rules so that we don't have too much fun in life. Maybe we'd never say that out loud, but that's kind of sometimes what we think, right? When in reality, what sin is, sin is trusting my joy to what I think is going to make me happy, rather than trusting the one who created it all, right? It's like, I think that in my 29 years of experience, I've got a good idea. I've got a better idea of what makes me happy and will bring me fulfillment and satisfaction in life than the God, the eternal God of the universe who created everything. And that's kind of silly, isn't it? But that's our view of sin too often. And As we talk about this, it brings me back to a passage in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 19. 
The Israelites have come out of Egypt. They've been delivered out of Egypt. They've gone over the Red Sea, and now they've come to Mount Sinai, where God is going to make this covenant with them. And so he says to them at this point, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed hear, obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, it's important to recognize how things happened here. Did, did God send Moses to Egypt to the Israelites and say, hey, you guys really need to pull it together. You guys need to do the right thing. And if you do that, God's going to save you. But he doesn't do that. God goes and he saves them out of that. And then says, look how I've saved you. Now, you are my people and I want you to be my people. You're my people and I want you to act like my people, my treasured possession, my holy nation. He wants to sanctify them, right? And, and we can find ourselves in that same place. God has rescued us out of darkness and we are his people and, and we're supposed to walk like him. But then what happens, and, and he gives them the law, his Ten Commandments, and this is how you live in, in, as, with this new identity. And it's exciting, And then just a few chapters later, you get to Exodus chapter 32. And I remember reading this, just thinking how absurd it is, what's about to happen. So Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days. And the Israelites start to get a little nervous, a little uncomfortable, right? They're like, ah, where's where's our leader? Has he abandoned us? Where's he gone? What are we going to do? Where's our God? And so they go to Aaron and they say, we need you to build us a God. And he does it. He's the brother of Moses. He's been a part of this whole thing, but he does it. He says, give me your gold, and he makes this golden calf, and then he says, here, Israel, is your God who has brought you out of Egypt. And as we're reading this, we're like, this, isn't, this is insane. What are you guys thinking, right? I mean, you just broke the first two commandments, have no other gods before me, and do not create any images. Like, what are you guys thinking? It, it brings it to a level of absurdity. And I remember growing up thinking this was so crazy, And I remember growing up thinking that idolatry would never be an issue in my life, right? That, like, I would never make something and worship it. Like, that seems so silly. Why? This is, like, the number one problem in the Israelites' life in Israel. And I would never have an issue with that, ever. How are you guys doing with idolatry? Have you been making any idols lately? Now, Maybe your first reaction is, well, of course not. No, like you you thought just like I did. That's not a sin I struggle with. Let me ask it a different way. Have you been trusting in something other than God to bring you comfort, safety, and happiness lately? That's the root of idolatry. See, idolatry is when God gives us good gifts, but then we take them and we want to use them ourselves in our own way. And when we do that, then we create a God out of those gifts, right? Um, it's, this, it's this idea that uh, we're, we're trying to fill, we're trying to satisfy ourselves with something other than God. God is all that we need, but then we take these other things and we're trying to find satisfaction, and, it, and it's hard sometimes, Right? Because we feel an emptiness inside. Living in a fallen world, we struggle. We have difficulties. And in order to make us feel better, we turn to these other things that we know can bring us at least a spark of happiness. Rather than trusting in God to provide for us. 
So what are some examples of these idols? Well, let's go back to the first one that we talked about in the passage. Sexual immorality. You see, God has given one of the greatest gifts he's given, and I think that's why the effects of the sin are so disastrous and why it's such a big temptation. Because it's one of the greatest gifts God has given us is sex. But then we want to take it for ourselves. You see, every time we sin, we're standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And we have a choice. Do I trust that God knows what's best? Or do I want to decide what's good and bad for myself? And with that same topic, do I trust that God knows what he did when he created the universe and he says that it works best in that context and everything else is a disaster? Or do I want to take it for myself and do it my own way? And we end up worshiping that instead of God. To be honest, we're worshiping the same gods that they did 2,000 years ago. We just took their names away. Money, sex, power, possessions. These are the same idols that we struggle with every day. We just don't realize it in the same way. Another one of these sins that's closely related to that one is gluttony. We don't talk about gluttony in the church a whole lot, do we? Sometimes I think we almost think like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the deal is with that, but we don't struggle with that today. But I can tell you that I struggle with that every day. And you're probably thinking, like, are you kidding me, Ryan? Whatever, look at you. You don't struggle with gluttony. But I do. I'm constantly, I, I have that temptation to, to use food to bring me comfort and happiness and satisfaction in my life. Right? And, and what I've had to do the last four years, on a regular basis, I've had to cut that idol down in my life. To stay away from it. Because it is a real temptation for me. How many of you out there can just eat one cookie? Because when I eat a cookie, I want to eat 17 of them. <laughs> because I just think I'm, I'm going to miss out if I don't get more of that thing. Rather than trusting in God for my satisfaction, I want to be satisfied by that thing. Right? We do it in many other ways as well. With possessions. You ever just get a rush just from buying something? It doesn't even matter what you bought. We're turning those things into idols. You know, there's a connection back to that illustration I shared earlier when Jill was up here to marriage. See, there's this covenant in marriage, just like we have this covenant with God. My identity changed, right? And before we got married, we had, we had said, you know what? Divorce is never an option. We're never going to do that. And so I could have gone from there and said, well, she stuck with me. I can live however I want to live. But is that a good way to do marriage? No. And what happens in marriage when I try to look outside of marriage, when I try to look outside of her for, to find satisfaction in those things? And we do it in all sorts of ways, right? It destroys our marriage. And it's the same thing with God. We're looking for something else outside of him for satisfaction in life. Now, as I say these things today, I want to make something clear. My goal here is not condemnation, is not just to make you feel guilty or shameful or something like that. We're, we're waiting around in this because we need to understand what sin really is. I want to paint a new picture of sin for you if you haven't heard this before. 
Because this is what sin really is. And we start to look at it from this perspective, it doesn't look as good anymore. And what we find in Romans 6.23 that this shows us is a different picture of sin. You, pro- you probably know uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But if you go one verse earlier, we find the lead-in verse to this. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've been set free from sin. See, sin is slavery. We often think that when I become a Christian, oh, I'm not allowed to do those things anymore. The reality is, when I follow Jesus, I don't have to do those things anymore. I'm no longer under the bondage of sin. I'm no longer under the control of the destructive power of sin. Sin isn't a good thing, right? We shouldn't want that. And so all of this is just to paint that picture so that we can understand why we want the transformation in our life. See, we know what it is, right? Becoming more like Jesus. Why do we want it? Because sin is death. Following Jesus, walking in newness of life, following in his righteousness, that is what real life is. We don't have to wait till we die to enter into eternal life. We start it now with a new relationship with him now, living like him now. We should all want this, right? We should all want desperately want that transformation to become more like Jesus because it's so much better than living like the world that we live in. The problem is, is maybe you're sitting there. You're going, yeah, but how? I've been trying, right? I've been struggling with this. I I don't want to live in this sin and yet it just has such a hold on me. And I am a believer. I do believe in Jesus. And I can tell you, I'm there with you. As I was preparing to preach this, this weekend, it just made me think, how can I preach this? As I'm just thinking, oh, the wretched man that I am. I'm not coming to you saying, I've got it figured out, guys. Here are the 10 steps to becoming the perfect Christian. I'm going, I'm right here with you. I struggle with sin every day. I struggle with temptation to sin every day. But I have hope. Because I look back and I go, I'm not the man I once was. God has been transforming me. God has been changing me. And I want to show you how. There's two two main things when it comes to how. Okay, how how do we do this transformation thing? How do we become more like Jesus? The first is complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. I would say 100% dependence on the Holy Spirit. 100% 100% dependence on God. Okay, We cannot do this without the Holy Spirit. We can't do it without God. We need him. We're helpless without it. But it's also 100% human effort. Now, I know what you're thinking. Ryan must have failed high school math. Okay, That's why I'm a pastor. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you guys get what I'm trying to say, right? It's both of these things. And as you look throughout Scripture, it's clear there's no way we're going to do it without the Holy Spirit. But I mean, as you read through Paul's letters, read through the New Testament, over and over and over, we get these imperatives, these do this, right? Because of what God has done for you, because of what Jesus has done for you, now do this. We have an active part in this. When we follow Jesus, we don't sit on the couch and wait for the Holy Spirit to make us new. We walk, right? It's called a walk. We follow him. And and part of that is doing something about it. So how do we rely more on the Spirit? One of the biggest ways we do this is prayer. 
We need to pray for help. And this isn't just like quick prayers before, you know, meals, that sort of thing. Lord, help me. I mean, I'm talking about a deep prayer. Coming before the Lord and being honest and saying, I can't do this. I'm struggling with this. I need your help. And, and as we do that, we also look back at the gospel. Um, another way to frame this, sanctification is gospel transformation. Because of the good news of Jesus, we are changed. And we need to keep looking back at the good news of what Jesus has done for us because the more we understand it, the more we know it, the more we want to be like him. So that's the dependence on the spirit side of it. Pray, know the gospel. But there's also a practical side of it. Okay, is there something we can do? And for me, this comes down to one, to kind of a main category. And it's called spiritual disciplines. Now, as I say that, some of you may revel a little bit, like, oh, it doesn't sound like much fun. Uh, and a couple years ago, I would have been the same place. Like, oh, that sounds like legalism. That sounds like we're trying to work for our faith again. But remember, no, we're not working for salvation. We're working from salvation. And spiritual disciplines give us a framework, give us a system to, on a regular basis, remind us of what God has done and how we're to walk in new life. So let me describe a few of these for you. The first is reading scripture. Read your Bible, right? And as you do that, you, you get to know God more, right? This is, the, this is how God has revealed himself to us, so we know him more. As we do this, we know how to be like Jesus more. We see who Jesus was. We learned how to walk with him, how to be like him more. We learn all that God has done for us, and that shapes us and changes us. Read God's word every day. And I'm of the mind, like, this isn't something we take vacations from. This isn't something that you take a day off from. Be in God's word every day. That's what's going to transform you. Another spiritual discipline is prayer. We talked about that a minute ago. Um, but just having that regular routine of prayer. And I'll tell you right now, um, check the box. Sometimes we're like, oh, I don't want it to just be a box checking thing. Do it. Okay? Because if you don't, you're not giving yourself an opportunity to meet with God that day. At least give yourself that opportunity. And there's going to be days where it's hard. There's days where you feel like you're talking to the wall, you're not getting anything out of it. And then there's wonderful, glorious days where you feel connected to the Father. So pray every day. Make that a part of your normal rhythms of your life. There's another one, and this one's not as popular. I think it went out of style uh, quite a while ago, but I think it's coming back. I've heard more Christians talking about it. Fasting. Fasting is another spiritual discipline. And we talk about fasting and prayer go together, which is, which is definitely true, but even fasting has, there's some great things about it. You want to cut the head off of that gluttony idol? Fast once a week. Because you're denying yourself the things that you think will bring you comfort and happiness and security, and you're trusting God to do it instead. Right? It's just, it's a regular rhythm that you get in the habit of doing that, and that shapes the rest of your week. You're reminded I don't need those things to bring me comfort and happiness and satisfaction. I can trust in him. So things like fasting are good, even, even like Sabbath in the same way. Practicing the spiritual discipline of Sabbath. Stopping work, right? Stopping what I think needs to get done. Stopping what I think is important to focus on what God has said is important. And it's trusting that the world's going to keep going around even if I'm not there to help it. I can trust God to do that. And I'm going to focus on him for that set-apart time. And that shapes the rest of your week. As you do that, you're setting, you're setting a rhythm for your week. To say, I trust God, and I trust what he said, rather than trusting in myself. 
So these are some different ways that we step into that human effort side of it. Disciplines that we do to become more like Jesus. As we finish here, I want, I want to make sure that I'm clear on what we're talking about. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the main idea we see here is, is this idea of sanctification. Be transformed. Become more like Jesus. You've believed in him, now become more like Jesus. And we've seen what that is, becoming more like Jesus. We've seen why. Because sin is death. We don't want to be a part of that anymore. And we've also seen how. 100% reliance on the Holy Spirit and 100% human effort. And on that human effort side, sometimes we need other people in our lives to help us with that. I want to encourage you, as I talk about the main sin that we talked about today, especially guys, if that's a struggle for you right now, if you feel trapped, if you feel like you can't get out of it, there's no hope, I encourage you to reach out. We actually have an email address at the church, truemen at bpchurch.com. It's in your bulletin there. Um, reach out to that. Because there's some guys that would want to come alongside of you and help you through this. This is a community thing. We need each other to walk in newness of life. God has saved us for so much more than just something that happens after he dies, after we die. He saved us right here and now to step into a new life in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, God, we, we praise you. We thank you, God, for all that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son on the cross for our sins. And Lord, I pray that the more that we look at that, the more that we understand it, the more we would be thankful and, and, and the more it would make us want to live like you. Lord, I pray that as we step into this, even this afternoon, God, um, Lord, that we would we would recognize the importance of this. That it's not some extra part of Christianity, Lord, but that it's part of following Jesus. And I pray that as we step into that, that we would be dependent on the Holy Spirit. That we'd also step into it ourselves. That we'd practice these things. That we'd live them out. And I pray that we would be able to look back next year, the year after, 10 years from now, and say, I'm not the person that I once was. You have changed me. You have transformed me. You have made me learn more like yourself. And that's one of the best testimonies that we can have to the other people around us is the change that you work in us through the power of the good news of Jesus, our Savior. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.